Amen. Good morning. I want to thank the band for leading us this morning. I also want to tack on a couple of announcements to Seth's announcements that he delivered uh, a few minutes ago. One of those is on an insert. If you got a bulletin this morning, there's an insert in there introducing a new staff member. Uh, that staff member is Tan Tanya Zuniga. Uh, she's not a stranger to us at all. Tanya's actually standing back here uh, by the pass-through to the kitchen. Um, we're bringing Tanya on as our director of Women's Ministry and Missions. And uh, we're really, really excited about the role she's going to play in developing those uh, strategic areas of ministry. So this is her opening weekend. This is her start uh, of her ministry here at Faith Bible. Uh, we trust that you'll be welcoming uh, to her uh, as she is here this morning. Obviously, be conscious of distancing and those kinds of things as you welcome her. But in the weeks to come, uh, please reach out to Tanya and, uh, and welcome her. And, and we're excited about having her on board. Another announcement that has to do with staffing is uh, on Friday, we received a commitment uh, from the man that we had offered the pastor of worship job to. Uh, so we have a pastor of worship here at Faith Bible Church now. Um, we're excited about that. I know you want to know his name, but I'm not going to tell you it. So he has uh, got a pull some things together uh, at his, uh, at his the church that he's currently serving at, uh, inform some people there uh, before we let you know uh, his name. So it is an exciting development to have uh, that man found. We feel great about uh, the way in which those, all of that came together, and we feel God has, has called him to serve uh, you, the people at, at Faith Bible. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, just giving uh, our gratitude for these things. Father, we come to you grateful today. We're grateful for the life and breath in our lungs, but we're grateful also to be able to gather, to be able to worship and exalt your name, to sing the gospel together. Uh, we are grateful that you are providing these different uh, staff members for uh, the ministry here at Faith Bible Church. Uh, we thank you for the way you have sovereignly gone before us and providentially provided just the perfect people uh, for these roles. Uh, and we're excited to see where you lead them and how you lead us uh, through their ministry. God, now as we come to your word, uh, open our hearts and minds. Use your spirit to uh, illuminate uh, the scriptures as we study them together. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you want to ask me a difficult question, you should ask me about my hobbies. I don't have many hobbies. I actually don't have really any hobbies. I do, however, occasionally play golf. And when you only play golf occasionally, you grant yourself one luxury. And I'm, of course, talking about the mulligan. A mulligan is simply an extra shot. Uh, it's a second chance. You know, you've hit a bad drive or a bad chip, and so you and your playing partner agree that you get to try it again. No penalty, no extra stroke. It's basically a do-over. And there are a couple guys in the church that regularly ask me to play golf, and when I'm able to go, they always, and I mean always, they give me a mulligan. But they only give me one for the whole round, only one mulligan. And I think they do that because they know that I would take advantage of their grace, because that's what a mulligan is. It's grace to the bad golfer. Any, any of you take advantage of the mulligan? I hope you do. Okay? It's grace to the bad golfer. And on the subject of grace, it continues to be proven to me that you really begin to understand the gospel when you begin to understand God's grace. You really begin to understand the gospel when you begin to understand God's grace. Everything that leads up to salvation in Jesus is grace. Everything that follows is grace. 
Every bit of spiritual life, growth, and vitality comes to you as you come into a better and more complete understanding of God's grace. More completely understanding that you are an undeserving recipient and that he, God, is an unobligated giver. You are an undeserving recipient and God is an unobligated giver. So if you belong to God this morning, that means that he has extravagantly sent his grace to you. And it is grace upon grace from him that truly sustains your life. So just think on grace this morning. What a relief. We can't earn it. We're not worthy of it. It's not even ours to lose. It's his to generously provide. Let's praise God together for his grace. But it's funny, though. Many people think of grace as purely a New Testament concept. It's common for people to think of the Old Testament as all about God's wrath and vengeance and judgment, and then the New Testament is about compassion and mercy and love. But when you read your Bible, you see that that's not actually true. There is as much grace in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament, easily. In fact, there's probably more because the Old Testament's almost three times longer. And the grace, I think, is all over the short Old Testament book of Jonah, of Jonah, which is where we're going to be studying for the next two weeks. So go ahead and turn to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. All right, if you're, if you're in Obadiah, you're almost there. If you're in Micah, you've gone too far. It's right in between those two minor prophets, the book of Jonah. And about this time last summer, I preached two sermons out of the book of Jonah. That was the last time that I preached to you outside of an already established series. And so I preached a couple of sermons out of Jonah. I don't expect you to remember those sermons, uh, but nevertheless, they did actually happen. And in that two-week series, we covered chapters one and two of this book. And in those chapters, a lot of really big events take place. And as I give you a little bit of review, I'm not going to try to cover all of the technicalities uh, that we went through in those two sermons. I'm just going to give you the basic vacation Bible school review story, okay? So Jonah is a prophet from Gath Heifer. He's the son of Amittai, we're told. And Gath, Gath Heifer is a village near Nazareth in Galilee. And Jonah gets a word from the Lord. That's how the book starts. He gets a word from the Lord to go and to preach judgment to the most wicked city in existence at that time, the city of Nineveh. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is the most powerful, wicked nation on earth, and Nineveh is its functional capital. And this calling on Jonah is somewhat unique because God really wasn't in the habit of calling Israel's prophets to preach to foreign nations especially those nations that would have threatened Israel's existence, which Assyria certainly did. So Jonah, initially, he rejects this call from God, and he proceeds not just to disobey God. The text says he proceeds to flee God's presence. He wants away from God entirely. And so in doing that, he boards a ship at a place called Joppa, and he sails west toward Tarshish, which is at the end of the known world. It's the, it's the complete opposite direction from the city of Nineveh. And so while on the way to Tarshish, God prepares a storm to overtake this boat that Jonah is in. Jonah is asleep in the hole of the ship. 
Even as the storm rages, he is asleep. He's awakened by the pagan sailors. They are fearful for their lives. And so Jonah, he takes the blame for the storm. He takes the blame and tells them, this is because I've disobeyed God. You need, to, you need to throw me overboard to placate my God's anger. And so the, the sailors, they do this to Jonah. They throw him overboard. The storm immediately stops. And on his way down to the depths of the sea, Jonah is swallowed by a fish where he spends three nights. And while he's in the fish, he writes a sort of psalm or a, a poem about God's mercy, which that is basically the whole of chapter 2. And then at the close of chapter 2, the fish spits him onto dry land. That's our review. And I want to remind you that in chapter 1 of the book of Jonah, grace comes to, to the prophet in the form of this fish. And, you know, all people are quick to ask, well, was it a fish or a whale? Well, there's no word in Hebrew for whale. So we have fish, okay? Uh, I don't know what it was exactly as, as, far, as far as its species go goes. But I know that it would be horrifying and disgusting to be swallowed by a huge fish. And one of the things that we learn from the story of Jonah is that the fish wasn't sent to punish him, though. That the fish was not an instrument of God's wrath in Jonah's life because of his sin. The fish was an instrument of God's grace. It was sent to save him. As I've said before, God's grace is often fierce before it is sweet. And with Jonah drowning in the depth of the sea, God appoints this fish. And this fish was a means of rescue for Jonah. This fish was God's grace. In fact, if we were going to name the fish, we would name the fish Grace. That would be her name. And what God reveals to Jonah through this act of grace, it actually makes its way into the poem. What he reveals to Jonah is this statement in chapter 2 of verse 9 that says, Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. With that confession, the prophet has realized that he doesn't get to be in charge of who is saved and who is not saved. He doesn't get to direct God's purposes. He doesn't get to direct God's ministry for him. He can't say to God, God, I don't like what you're up to. I want away from this calling of speaking for you. I'm just going to run away. He can't do that. Jonah can't even devise his own death by having himself hurled into the depths of the sea. Not even there can he be in charge of his own fate because God is ultimately in charge. God is in charge, and in the depths of the sea, God pursues and delivers Jonah in a mighty way, delivering him in a way that can only be explained by seeing God's sovereign purposes, which are simply all over this incredible book of the Old Testament. Jonah 2.9, salvation comes from the Lord. It is of the Lord, which, me, which means it's a salvation by sheer grace. J.I. Packer, who actually died in late July, died last month. He was 94 years old. He said this about grace. He said, grace means God's love in action toward people who merited the opposite of love. He goes on, grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Good, concise definitions of grace there. And it's grace that fuels all of God's saving purposes and programs. And it also fuels how he deals with the servants that he calls to carry out those purposes and programs. I said grace was all over the Old Testament. Just, just, let's just consider a few Old Testament names for a moment. Consider Abraham. 
Abraham, after being called to Canaan where God wanted him to be, where God wanted him to set up camp and live, what did Abraham do? Abraham fled to Egypt where he lied about his wife. He also grew impatient with God's promises. He had a child with his servant Hagar. These are huge mistakes. Yet God does not turn away from Abraham, does not turn away from the covenant that he established with him. God is faithful. God is gracious. How about Jacob? Jacob, patriarch of Israel, a man who failed again and again and again, but God would not let Jacob go. In the wilderness, God would physically tackle Jacob and bring him to a place of utter dependence upon him. God did not reject Jacob after the first mistake or the second mistake or the third mistake. God was gracious and faithful. How about David? King David was a great king, but King David's sin is very well documented. He took a man's wife and effectively had the man murdered to cover it up. But God didn't reject David. Scripture tells us that David's a man after God's own heart, and his passion for God is not always reflected in his impeccable righteousness, not at all, but it is reflected in his continual contrition and in his repentance. We see that in David. And that all comes by God's grace. And just one more from the New Testament. How about Peter? Peter, one of the 12 disciples, he said, I will never fail you, Lord Jesus. Yet three times, Peter denies even knowing Christ. But the Lord never failed Peter. He would restore, Jesus, or he would restore Peter to ministry and to apostolic ministry. And so I offer that long introduction this morning to say this. God gives mulligans. God gives second chances and third chances and sixth chances. God is not at all stingy with his grace. And I think, I have to think, that some of you here this morning need to hear that and need to know that and need to be comforted by that. Because some of you maybe messed up a marriage and you need to know that God extends grace and gives you another chance. Some of you this week, you mistreated someone who's probably close to you, and you need to realize that God can cover that in his grace. Some of you young people have sinned in ways that you can't get back, and you absolutely need to know that God supplies grace to you in spite of that sin. So if, if God wasn't the God of do-overs and second chances, we would all be toast. But he is, and we aren't, and either is Jonah. So let's read chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 10. God's word says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days' walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation. And it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? 
God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. May he write its truth upon our hearts today. So from this chapter, I want to focus on four major events. Four major events. The recommissioning of Jonah, the response of Jonah to that recommissioning, the repentance of Nineveh, and then the relenting of God. Those are our four points. Let's look at the recommissioning of Jonah in verses 1 and 2. I don't know about you, but again, I get encouragement from that little phrase in verse 1 a second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It had come to him in chapter 1, now it's coming to him in chapter 3. And I like that because, we, again, we all need God to be patient with us. We all need that do-over because we're hard-hearted or we're rebellious or we just want to be disobedient. But God comes to us a second time. And the task, again, there in verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh. And we know a little bit about Nineveh. We know it to be the functional capital of Assyria. It didn't become the actual capital until decades later. But in the middle of the 8th century, when Jonah is sent there, it's not quite yet the capital. It's about 600 miles or so from Jerusalem, 550 miles from the home of, of Jonah in Galilee. And the book of Jonah continually calls Nineveh a great city. It uses this superlative, great, and it was a great city. It's a great city in a variety of ways, four ways that I'd like to point out Nineveh's greatness. First, Nineveh was historically great. So it's a city established all the way back in Genesis chapter 10. So it's old. It was built by the great-grandson of Noah, a man named Nimrod. If you're into biblical names for your children, you might keep Nimrod in mind. But maybe not, because Nimrod was also a chief architect for the Tablet of Babel, so he's got that on his record. And as I've mentioned before, Nineveh was established at a location that would be near the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq. It stood on the east bank of the Tigris River, and one of the tributaries of the Tigris actually ran right through the middle of Nineveh. So it's historically great. It goes back a long way. Nineveh was also great in size. The circumference of the city and its suburbs was about 60 miles the walled portion of Nineveh, sort of what we might call Nineveh proper, had a circumference of eight miles, which for a walled city is, in that day is gigantic. And in places, the, the wall was over 50 feet thick. So this stage is about 48 feet or so uh, from side to side. So it was 50 feet thick. Horses and chariots would actually run atop the walls of Nineveh. There's further excavation that reveals that the, the city walls boasted as many as 1,500 towers, making it this massive fortress of a place. You know, for an ancient city, its scale is just colossal. And so it's great in history, and it's great in size. It's great in its sin. It's great in its sin. And this is why Jonah was being sent there. The wickedness of the Ninevites had risen up before God. That's what chapter 1 says. The Assyrians were known for their violence. The world's largest empire at the time was also the world, world's most wicked. They showed no mercy to their enemies. They would often impale their en enemies on large poles, and they would just leave them to bake in the desert sun. They beheaded people by the thousands, and they would stack their skulls by the city gates as a warning to all who would enter. They, they were famous for the, the practice of skinning people alive. 
It's Nahum chapter 3 that gives a vivid description of the horrors of Nineveh. In one part it says, it's a city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, a wicked and sinful place. Nineveh is also great from the standpoint of being populous. So at the time of Jonah, there were at least 120,000, some say in upwards of 600,000 people living in Nineveh. So God says it's a great city because it had something that God cared greatly about. It had people. God loves people, and Nineveh had a great number of people, people in need of him. And it was to the wicked people of this great city that God sends his servant Jonah. And he assures him, I will give you the message that you're going to speak, which is exactly the way the end of verse 2 reads. The Lord would give Jonah a message to proclaim. Jonah's message to Nineveh would be from the mouth of God. He's not left to himself to figure this out. God is going to give him the message. And just real quick on this point, and this will be not so subtle, so forgive me, but powerless is the preacher who draws only on his own insights, only on his own innovations to, de- to deliver what he thinks is God's message. Powerless is that preacher. Those who preach faithfully are those who are committed to teaching God's revealed word, not their own ideas. And I'm not saying that preaching can't be fresh or creative or innovative, but if, if, if someone's preaching is always framed as five steps to this or three strategies for that or six tips on this, just look out for that preacher. Because too many teachers today have stepped away from really delivering God's word and they only preach what they think people want to hear. So their sermons are a constant stream of of messages on relationships and finances and marriage and maximizing human potential and getting out of debt and raising great kids. And those aren't necessarily bad things. The problem is, it's not really always God's word that's being taught around those things. Preachers give advice. Some of it's pretty good advice, but it's not always God's word. It's what they think or it's what they've done or what, what they've seen work. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul describes this kind of preaching. He describes it as irreverent, silly myths. Irreverent in that there is very very little fear of God in the teaching. Silly in that there is no eternal weight to the teaching. And then myths in that it's the word of man and not the word of God. And I fear these messages appeal to people because they provide solutions for what people can see but what people actually need are messages about what they can't see and why they can't see it. And so Jonah's call is not going to Nineveh to give them life tips and success strategies. That's not why he's showing up. He is going to preach and proclaim the word of God. He's still a prophet, and his call is to preach the exact message that God gives him to share. And he's done that. He's done that once in his ministry that we know of. He, he delivered good news to the northern kingdom. They didn't deserve good news, but they got good news from Jonah. But now Jonah's call is to bring bad news to wicked Nineveh. And, it's, and when it's God's work, it requires God's word. And so that's what Jonah is given. Which brings us to the second point, the response of Jonah. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. So we're three chapters into this book, and finally the prophet obeys. Jonah is finally headed east instead of west. 
It's going to take him at least a month to travel from his home near Nazareth to the city of Nineveh. And on that journey, there would be lots of time for, for Jonah to think about what the Ninevites might do to him when he gets there. Would he be impaled, beheaded, skinned alive? He, he had to be frightened, but it didn't matter. Jonah had already tried to run away from this calling, and it didn't work. He knew there was no escape. He couldn't run away. He couldn't swim away. God was going to bring him back. So knowing he doesn't really have a choice, he obeys the word of the Lord and goes to Nineveh. Now, how many of you have ever been on a fishing trip? Some of you. Okay, you're sheepish about raising your hands. And I know say, I said earlier that I didn't have any hobbies, which is true, but I've always liked to fish. I just almost never go is the problem. But when I was in junior high and, and high school, a friend and I would go to Broken Bow in far southeastern Oklahoma. This was before there were any nice cabins down there. And every spring break, we'd go crappie and sand bass fishing on Broken Bow Lake. And I loved that trip. I loved it. We'd catch lots of fish. We'd bring them back to our cabin each night. There was this big outdoor cleaning table, and we'd gather around it, and we'd clean all the fish, and we'd bag up the fillets, and we'd tell fish stories. It was so great. I can, I can still smell it almost, right? And I remember a lot of the clothes that I would bring home from that trip, my mother would just throw in the garbage can. She didn't even want them in her washing machine. And my point is, when you go on a fishing trip, you come home smelly. Right, ladies? You don't even want your husband in the house, almost, when he comes home from a fishing trip. Well, Jonah had not been on a fishing trip. He had been on an inside-the-fishing trip, if you know what I mean. For, for three days, he was in the belly of this fish. And I have to think, you, just, you don't just rinse that kind of nasty off of you, do you? It's going to hang around for quite a while. Many scholars and biologists believe that the, the gastric juices of the fish, they would have maybe stained Jonah's skin in some regard. It, it could have singed a great deal of the hair off of his body. Jonah would have smelled just awful. He would have looked horrific. He, he would have literally appeared as if he had come back from the dead. So when Jonah shows up in the city, in addition to giving them the word of the Lord, he has this sign of this experience in the fish. He has the wretched stink. He, he has the story of God's power and grace and deliverance and sovereignty. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how God has a way of sovereignly using your experiences and even your failures to make you a more effective messenger for him? Isn't that amazing? Speaking of, do you know who the chief God of the Ninevites would have been? It would have been a false god named Dagon. Guess what they considered Dagon the god of? He was the fish god. Dagon was the fish god. So Jonah shows up in Nineveh where they worship the god of fish, smelling like fish, looking like death from marinating in the guts of a fish for three days. He's just been vomited up by the fish, surviving the whole ordeal somehow. Jonah has been sovereignly prepared to preach to this people group. What about you? Who has God sovereignly prepared you to preach to? What experiences, what failures, what grace of God have you experienced and gone through that gives you a unique inroad to sharing the gospel to a certain group of people? Ask yourself that. Because there is someone, I guarantee there is someone. And now that he has their attention because of this experience that he no doubt had to tell them about, 
He proclaims the message that God has given him to proclaim. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's a four-word message in Hebrew. Hebrew. I have no idea how many words it is in Assyrian. Either way, it's what God has given him to say. And he said it, forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown, or Nineveh will be destroyed. And throughout Scripture, the number 40 seems to be identified with testing or with judgment. If you remember the time of of Noah, it rained 40 days and and, and 40 nights. The Jewish spies in the Exodus story, they explored Canaan for 40 days. The giant Goliath taunted Saul and the army of Israel for 40 days. And now here, the Lord giving the people of Nineveh 40 days to repent and turn from their wickedness. Which leads us to the third point there in your notes, the repentance of Nineveh. The response of Nineveh to the concise message of doom brought by Jonah is immediate. It's immediate, full-scale, city-wide repentance. Look at verse 5. And the Ninevites believed in God. Notice it doesn't say that the Ninevites believed Jonah. It says they believed God or believed in God. They they had heard God speaking through this reluctant, self-righteous prophet And it was God who sovereignly moved in their hearts toward him. In that little phrase, they believed in God, that the Hebrew text, I think, makes it clear that they trusted in God. And I say that with conviction because the exact same sentence structure is used in Exodus 14 to describe Israel's response of faith for what God had done to release them from bondage in Egypt. The same word for believe is used in Genesis when it was Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is genuine faith by all accounts that's being exercised by the Ninevites. And I point this out because this record of Jonah's experience that we're reading, it would have been first read by his own people, by the people of Israel. And it's safe to say that this idea of God granting saving faith to the Ninevites this was going to be very upsetting to them. Because the Jewish view of saving faith was very narrow, very limited, very exclusive. And so hearing this story of Ninevite faith and repentance, it it was going to absolutely blow apart their worldview. They they thought faith in Yahweh or faith in the Lord belonged to them. And Jonah's saying through this account, no, God pours out his mercy on all nations. We've hoarded this treasure for ourselves. We've failed in being a light to the Gentiles whom God wants to be known amongst. Jonah's probably reminded of a prayer that he would have prayed a hundred times. It's a prayer recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. It's actually a prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. And it reads, As for the foreigner, when he comes and prays toward this temple, O Lord, hear from heaven. And do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Israelites had been praying that prayer for centuries, but you know what? No one really believed it. No one believed it. No one thought the, Jew, the, the God of the Jews cared for other nations. They, of course, were wrong. Nineveh, Nineveh had believed. God's grace is marching on in this story. And in verse 5, we see these Ninevites don't just believe cognitively. They don't just agree with what Jonah is saying here. They act in two ways that shows that their belief has already moved to action. 
They fast and they put on sackcloth, which seems bizarre to us, but these were both common acts of repentance in the ancient world. And it says the entire city responds this way, from the greatest of them to the least of them, young, old, rich, and poor, powerful, and weak. Every strata of society is responding to God. Look at what happens to the king in verses 6 through 8. The warning reached the king of Nineveh. And he rose from his throne, and he took off his royal robes, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let the people or animals, herbs, or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and animals be covered with sackcloth, and let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. So the king exchanges his royal robe for, for sackcloth for burlap. What this is is an acknowledgement that he's not really the king anymore. His authority belongs to another. His authority belongs to Yahweh, to God, to the Lord. He cannot rule and judge because he is the one deserving of God's judgment and affliction. And so for the king to sit in dust means he is leaving his seat of authority and humbling himself, prostrating himself before God in repentance These are very powerful actions by someone in his position. And some have seen, and there probably is, some humor in the king's edict when he he goes ahead and requires the animals to put on sackcloth and join in the fast. I'm sure they were disturbed at this, what is going on. But that just speaks to the complete nature of this repentance. In the king's mind, the, the, the animals were going to be judged as well. If the nation was going to be judged, that was going to trickle down to the animals, and so they need to show their repentance, lest they be destroyed as well. There, beginning in verse 8, a form of the verb repent is used four times in three verses, 8 through 10. So it's, it's the theme of the section repentance is. And, and there are three important phrases in what the king asks the people to do in their repentance. He says, first of all, call urgently on God. Call urgently on God. That refers to wholehearted repentance. It's physically using one's whole being to cry out to God. Have you ever called out to God that way? Where it's your whole being, it's it's your whole body, soul, spirit, everything is crying out to God for help, for forgiveness, for mercy, for his hand in a situation. That's what these Ninevites are doing. They're calling urgently on God with all of themselves and with all of them. Secondly, he talks about the, the fruit of repentance or, or the evidence that there has been genuine turning. The, the phrase evil way is a description of a general lifestyle of, of immorality, of disregard for the Lord. And the king tells them to turn their backs on that lifestyle, to go the other direction from how they had previously lived. I ran across a line from a counselor named Diane Langberg this week. She writes, repentance means to have another mind about something to have another mind about something. So not just to acknowledge wrong, but to have your mind reordered in a way so as to not go near that wrong any longer. For it to lose its appeal or its attraction to to have a completely different approach to it. The king has another mind about their sinful actions and about their sinful reputation. And then he further tells them to turn from their violence 
which is a phrase almost always used in the Old Testament to denote social injustice or the the taking advantage of other people because of your own superior position. And so what this means is the king is not calling the people to some sort of simple short-term reform in the society. He's talking about a radical lifestyle change for himself and for hundreds of thousands of people. He's talking about dismantling the patterns of injustice in this Assyrian society. So what's going on in Nineveh is nothing short of full-scale revival. Jonah, this reluctant, obstinate prophet, sees revival on a greater scale than anyone before him and anyone after him. Paul, Peter, any of the apostles, none would see the repentance and belief that's witnessed by Jonah. Amazing. Which brings us to the final of our four points, the relenting of God. The relenting of God. Just as Nineveh turned, God turned and and chose to show the Assyrians compassion. God relented from destroying Nineveh. And some look at that detail and think, look, look, see, God changes his mind. He'd been dead set on their destruction, but he's so moved by their sincerity that that he has a change of heart. Without getting into the subject of God's immutability or his unchangingness, let me just say this. God is utterly consistent with himself all the time. So when sinners repent, God relents. That's what he does. That's his character. That's his program. That's how he interacts with his creation. When sinners repent, God relents. There's nothing changing with God. It's the Ninevites who change. God simply responds to their genuine faith and repentance. You know, for the longest time, I've always been fascinated by the book of Jonah. I return to it constantly because I think it's just a literary masterpiece. And for the longest time, I strongly questioned the validity of Nineveh's repentance. I used lots of technical reasoning, and I thought I had it all kind of figured out. But I just can't get around the words of Jesus. Jesus, in talking to the Pharisees in Matthew's Gospel, he says to them, For Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, one greater than Jonah is here. And so he's saying, Jesus is, to the religious elite, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. Now let me show you what that looks like. Turn to the book of Jonah, the Ninevites. That's repentance. Again, the words of Jesus in Luke's gospel, for as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah was a sign. Like Jesus, he not only gave a message, he was the message. The sign was resurrection. He was the man who came back from the grave, back from certain death. Nineveh believed that by God's grace, Jonah had come back from the dead. And through his message, there was deliverance, therefore, from their own impending judgment. Through his message, they realized, oh, there could be grace for us as well. Does that sound familiar? It should because it points us directly to the gospel. And what the gospel says to us is that there is no one beyond God's grace. Not rebel prophets, not wicked people groups, not you. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. So if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, maybe you've always framed your experience in life is saying, you know, I've just done too much. God would never forgive me. 
I've seen too much. I've experienced too much. You need to look to a story like this one. You need to look really at the cross of Jesus Christ and recognize what's been done for you to extend to you the grace of God and the forgiveness of your sins. If you've never done that, you should do that today. You should look to the cross. You should look to the grace of Jesus uh, before leaving here this morning. So next week, we're going to look at chapter 4. And chapter 4 is very much the key to understanding the book of Jonah. If you read through the story and you get to the end of the chapter 3, it's almost as if the story should end. There'd be a nice ribbon tied onto it. Oh, perfect. This all got resolved. But then chapter 4 hits you in the nose. And what chapter 4 is, is an object lesson on God's love. Or, on, or really on the love that we should have toward other people. So we've been talking about love all summer. That's one of the reasons I returned to this book, because chapter 4 gives us an object lesson on the way our idolatry gets in the way of us loving people. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for this opportunity to gather in this place, to sing the gospel together, to hear the gospel out of your word. And now as we come to the Lord's table, a celebration of grace and mercy and forgiveness, we're going to taste the gospel together. And so, Lord, be with us in this time. Draw near now as we look to the supper. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jay. It is the first Sunday of the month, and that is the Sunday that we set aside to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And at Faith Bible Church, we practice open communion, meaning that you don't have to be a member of this church to partake in this meal, but rather uh, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you are a a follower of the Lord, uh, you can take communion with us, and we welcome you to do that. I hope everyone's got their communion kit with them. Uh, you might want, to, might want to start going, go ahead and, and peeling that top layer, that uh, clear layer back to get to your, your cracker, which we'll take in a few moments together. I will direct us as we take this meal. But before we do that, uh, this morning in a sermon, Jay taught us a lot, spoke a lot about grace and repentance. These are two words that all believers in Jesus should know well and apply to our lives often. It's no accident, then, that today that we are partaking in an earthly representation of God's glorious grace through the Lord's Supper. This meal represents the lengths that our God went to in sending his own son to die so that we could know him and his grace forever. And it reminds me of a story that may be familiar to some of you. In the spring of 1994, a pastor in a small church in Madison, Wisconsin, was asked to go to a prison just north of where he lived to visit an inmate who desired to be baptized. A few days later, Pastor Roy Ratcliffe met the prisoner, talked with him about the gospel, and upon the, uh, the profession of faith of the prisoner, agreed to baptize him. In the New York Times, this scenario was described in this way. He was seeking redemption, Mr. Ratcliffe says, recalling how the prisoner often spoke of being the worst of sinners. He was seeking forgiveness. A few weeks later, the prisoner donned a white polyester robe and climbed into a steel silver whirlpool normally used by inmates with physical injuries. The minister gently pushed him under the water until he was finally immersed and baptized him with a short prayer. When the convict emerged, the preacher said, Welcome to the family of God. And Jeffrey Dahmer smiled. Every Wednesday for months afterwards, Mr. Ratcliffe met with Mr. Dahmer to pray. And a few days before he was killed in November of 1994, Mr. Dahmer handed Mr. Ratcliffe a Thanksgiving Day card that the minister keeps wrapped in plastic. Dear Roy, the note begins in loopy handwriting, Thank you for your friendship and for taking the time and effort to help me understand God's word. We know Jeffrey Dahmer as a serial killer of 17 victims 
of crimes that are too brutal to describe this morning. But if you believe that Jesus came to save and seek the lost, then one day you will know Jeffrey Dahmer as your brother in Christ and your fellow citizen in heaven. And if the thought of this mass murder being in heaven for all of eternity brings a shock of unfairness into your heart, then welcome to the reality of God's unimaginable grace. In his book, In the Grip of Grace, Max Lucado compares Jeffrey Dahmer in his situation with that of another well-known criminal. Lucado writes this, A condemned criminal was sent to his death by his country. In his final moments, he asked for mercy. Had he asked for mercy from the people, it would have been denied. Had he asked of it from the victims, they would have turned a deaf ear. But it wasn't to these that he turned for grace. He turned instead to the bloodied form of the one who hung on the cross next to his and pleaded, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered by saying, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Lucado continues on, as far as we know, Jeffrey Dahmer did the same thing. And as far as we know, Jeffrey Dahmer got the same response. And when you think about it, Lucado says, the request Dahmer made is no different than yours or mine. He may make it from a prison bunk, and you may make it from a church pew, but from heaven's angle, we're all asking for the moon. As my friend Bird Troxel said to me this week, in one respect, Jeffrey Dahmer was no further from heaven than we were. And yet, through Jesus, God's grace was sufficient for Jeffrey Dahmer, just as his grace is sufficient for us in our great sin. And if all of this is true, which it is, then this communion table in which we sit today is a table of celebration and of joy. We celebrate the, the, the fact that God saved the thief on the cross, the seer murderer on death row, and the sinners in this room who have believed in Jesus. We take joy in the reality that Jesus took our sins upon himself, and we praise God that we have been adopted into our Father's kingdom and into his family, and this is how we can sit at our Father's table this morning. Our gracious Father is inviting us once again to dine with him at his table and enjoy the blessing of our salvation through Christ. So let's take a moment to silently ponder God's amazing grace. Ask God to prepare you for this meal and thank him for the grace that he has shown to give you the opportunity to dine with him. Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And after he gave thanks, he said this, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your amazing grace through Jesus. We confess our sinfulness. We confess our inability to come to you on our own. God, give us humble hearts this morning as we um, come to your table. God, give us thankful minds as we take this meal. For you brought us into light out of the darkness in which we dwelled. So we thank you for Jesus' sacrifice. We thank you for his death on the cross. And we thank you for the salvation that he brings us as our Savior. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you, as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together again. Father, we thank you for the shed blood of Christ. It is by his wounds that we are healed, and it is by his death and resurrection that we are made free from the sin that imprisoned us. We take this cup in thankfulness and in praise of your mercy 
and your goodness and your faithfulness to us through Christ. Help us live as repentant people who trust in you at all times. Let's take the cup together. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for sharing this meal with us. We praise you, God, for your goodness and for your grace. Help us to be a people who share the great truths of our salvation with the people in our lives who still dwell in darkness apart from you. Give us a heart for those who do not know you, and Holy Spirit, empower us to share the truth of the gospel in everything we do. As we leave this place this morning, Father, we commit our lives to you. We confess our great need for you. Father, we praise you for your grace that saves us and sustains us at every moment of every day. We thank you again for Jesus and his sacrifice, and we do pray all of this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond and sing. Precious blood has left me forgiven. Pure like the whitest of snow. Thank you again for being here this morning and worshiping with us. Our uh, benediction comes from Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7. There the prophet says this, I will make known the Lord's faithful love and the Lord's praiseworthy acts because of all the Lord has done for us, even the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, which he did for them based on his compassion and the abundance of his faithful love.
Go in God's grace this morning. You are dismissed.